Howdy, y'all, and welcome to another episode of the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast. Folks, if you like Tolkien, you've come to the right watering hole. I'm Chad Bornholt, Chad in Texas, and co-hosting with me today is my friend Chad High, or if you like, also Chad in Texas. Thank you, Chad. Well, y'all are in for a treat today because we have a very interesting topic lined up for you to listen and ponder over as our panel of guests discuss and tackle it right here on the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast. And if you want to get on the podcast and be a member of one of our distinguished panels in the near future, our elf friends, as we call them, stay tuned after the discussion and learn how you can be on the podcast. If this is the first time you're tuning in, well, howdy. Here at the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast, we bring in guests from all over the world to talk about the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. This is a podcast where you can take the lead. Any Tolkien topic is fair game. Chad and I moderate a panel of four to five guests who are enthusiastic about Tolkien and his legendarium and have a topic that they not only want to pose to their fellow panelists, but also to you listeners at home. We are so glad that you are tuning in and joining us today. We think it's going to be a really fun and thoughtful discussion. So kick off your shoes and stay a while, and we'll do our best to keep you entertained, or at least from falling asleep for the next half hour or so. Well, it's the job that's never started as takes longest to finish. Yeah, I think we've talked enough. Now let's go ahead and let our Elendili, that is our elf friends, introduce themselves. Let's begin, y'all. Hey, everyone. I'm excited to be here. My name is Abigail Dixon, and I was introduced to Tolkien when I was really young through The Hobbit, of course. I loved it. I was obsessed with the dwarf runes, and uh, I figured out how to write letters to my friends in dwarf runes, so that was fun. Uh, When I was around 12, I read Lord of the Rings for the first time, and I adored it. Um, I was obsessed with that for probably a year or so. And then I remember for my 14th birthday, I think it was, my parents gave me The Silmarillion, Unfinished Tales, and The Children of Hurin. And I devoured them in a week. And I have been obsessed wholeheartedly ever since. Some highbrow reading there. Okay. Nice to be be here with y'all. Um, Sam Dillon. I, I got into Tolkien when I was um, about 12 years old, I think, is when I started, or 11, because I remember my brother uh, told me about The Hobbit and, and encouraged me to read it. And, you know, it's always been a part of the family. So we've always, like, made references and stuff. And I started reading The Hobbit when I was old enough to do it myself. And, uh, and then, you know, he was reading Lord of the Rings and I was like, wait, there's more to this. And then you get little, a little jealous, huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, no way. Is it it's like, are you talking about the Lord of this ring that, that came up in the book? And, and he's like, well, you got to read to find out. And, and then unbeknownst to me, like shortly after that, the movies came out. Like I had, I had to do a book report and. I was just like, you know, the the structure of the book report was it could be like a movie poster. And I was like, all right, let me do this. And I, I started researching and everything. And I typed in like, you know, I was like early days of the Internet as well. And I was like uh, Lord of the Rings movie poster. And I started seeing stuff and I was like, wait, this looks pretty legit. <laughs> and then shortly after that, the movies came out. And, and so it just sort of reinforced that love of the books that I already had. I love this because everybody dates themselves. <laughs> Hi, my name is Steve Strickland. Um, I'm excited to be here. I first discovered Tolkien when I was uh, as a senior in college at the University of Texas in Austin. I had to write a senior thesis. I've been looking for an excuse to read The Lord of the Rings. 
And so next thing I knew, I was reading The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, The Silmarillion, loving it all. Um, I did a, my senior thesis was a 130 page paper on um, the Silmarillion and uh, themes of creation and subcreation in the Silmarillion. I'm Xander Mullins. Uh, I first got into Tolkien when, well, my mother read The Hobbit to me when I was really little, but uh, I didn't really get into it until later when I was probably around 13. Then I really dove into it and have not stopped since. <laughs> awesome. Okay, welcome in, everybody. On today's episode of the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast, we have another great topic for you to consider at home by our panel of elf friends. And that topic is going to be led by Xander. Xander, take us away. Hello. Uh, thanks. Uh, so I'll be discussing uh, the will of Iluvatar. Uh, what is it? What it is, how it shows up at the Legendarium, and what happens when his will and free will collide. So... Basically, I'm just going to be asking a lot of questions for discussion on this one. So basically, my first question to everybody is, uh, can Eru's will ever be thwarted? And does anyone ever try to? I'll do the first go around at this one. Yes and no is my answer in short. The free will and the beings that exist within Eru's creation can choose to rebel against the will and design of the creator. But as is said in the Silmarillion, no theme shall be played that hath not its uttermost source in me, nor can any alter the music in my despite. For he that attempteth this shall prove but mine instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself hath not imagined. I and I would, I would point you all to Turin for more confusion on this issue. <laughs> we won't go there. We won't go there. That would, that would be too long of an episode. But in this short excerpt, it can be seen that even though things don't go by intended design, Eru, through his will, can redeem things to create a greater beauty. So that's my answer to that first question. So Abigail's already answered the question perfectly. Should prove but my instrument. How do you say it's Babimi? Um, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a great uh, great scene in the Anulindale. Go ahead, Chad. I was going to say we should add that the that the shall prove but my instrument is has become a popular saying in the in the Tolkien circles now because of Alan Sisto of the Prancing Pony podcast very early on when they started the podcast, he basically turned that into a little word where you say spabimi and it, what Abigail read and Steve acronym. read. It. It's like, a, yeah, he just made a little acronym out of it, like like uh, NASCAR or NASA or something. It's uh, shall prove but my instrument is now known as spabimi to all of us. Yeah, they, must, they almost have a trademark on that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So... I know that we're saying both yes and no, um, but doesn't, but doesn't shall prove but mine instrument just isn't, isn't that just no? Come not to the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast for answers because they will answer both yes and no. Go ahead, Sam. 
<laughs> That's fantastic. Um, I did come across, uh, I, I guess I decided not to read the excerpt, but there is a, a passage in uh, the Silmarillion where Manwe and Mandos kind of have uh, differing points of view on the topic of Feanor. And I see that as the sort of, it, it, like, so as, we, as we've discussed that Eru's will is, you know, kind of ultimate. Uh, it does appear that Eru's um, will can still result in evil deeds. And, um, oh, well, uh, I guess I do have it here. It, is, uh, it was told by the Vanyar who held vigil with the Valar that when the messengers declared to Manwe the answers of Feanor to his heralds, Manwe wept and bowed his head. But at the last word of Feanor, that at the least the Noldor should do deeds to live in song forever, he raised his head as one that hears a voice far off. And he said, so shall it be. Dear bought, those songs shall be accounted, and yet shall be well bought. For the price <clears throat> could be no other. Thus, even as Eru spoke to us, shall beauty not before conceived be brought to Ea, and evil yet be good to have been. But, Mando said, and yet remain evil. To me, shall Feanor Feanor come soon, and it's kind of like, yeah, it's like, yeah, the, the, like it may be Eru's will ultimately, but as Mando's pointed out, it's like, well, it's still bad, and he's still gonna have to face judgment, and I'm gonna do it. <laughs> yeah, and you see that it, you see that basically the the way that Xander was presenting this is, can it be thwarted? Not really. But can the, can the method by which it appeared as though it was going to play out be thwarted? Oh, yes, almost every time. It's just the only person who really knows the way it was really going to play out is Eru, and he's not talking. Manwe may know a little bit about it. Mandos may know a little bit about it. But the, the will... His, the, the way Eru wanted it to play out, the final product is going to happen. It doesn't matter what you do, you will find that you only aided him, no matter what you tried to do. Exactly, Chad. You just made my argument for me, because Eru is the ma- he, I call I refer to him sometimes as the master adjuster, right? He, he adjusts. He just, that's, that's the whole legendarium is, is Eru just adjusting. He's tweaking things as they come along. So actually, you you can't thwart the will of Eru Luvatar because he just adjusts it. So may, maybe it's bad in the short term. It's bad for five minutes, but in ten minutes, it ain't bad no more. It's like with with the people who are in the story. You remember whenever Sam and Frodo are uh, are over going through the final phases of their quest. The people who were in the story, they may not like how it's playing out, but in the grand scheme of things. It is important for the things to happen. Now, the people who were caught up in the in the problematic portions of that story may end up being uh, negatively impacted, but overall, it is necessary to happen. Yeah, I do. I should have known that you all would uh, quote that for me. Yeah, so you all stole my reading for today. <laughs> Actually, just one of my readings. I have a few more. Uh, but I think I'll do a little bit of a larger passage for Spabibi. So this is uh, in the Sil- Silmarillion uh, Ainu Lindale. Uh It is on page five of my copy. Uh, that probably will be different for everybody. <clears throat> 
In the midst of this strife, whereat the halls of Iluvatar shook, and a tremor ran out into the silences yet unmoved, Iluvatar arose a third time, and his face was terrible to behold. Then he raised up both his hands, and in one cord, deeper than the abyss, higher than the firmament, piercing as the light of the eye of Iluvatar, the music ceased. Then Iluvatar spoke, and he said, Mighty I the Ainur, and mightiest among them is Melkor. But that he may know, and all, and all the Ainur, that I am Iluvatar, those things that ye have sung, I will show them forth, that ye may see what ye have done, and thou, Melkor, shall see that, th that no theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me, nor can any alter the music in my despite. For he that attempteth, attempteth it this, for he that attempteth this shall prove but mine instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself have not imagined. Yeah, see, Melkor just doesn't get it. He's he's too busy going, I'm this unto myself, and this unto myself, and this unto myself. Right, right. Sam? Well, and I was thinking, so um, I, I think it's a little detracting, but but uh, uh, the the it's the it's also the interpretation. Uh, it's, uh, I guess a question that I have is that the interpretation of Eru's will, like because as we've said, you know, there, uh, it could be you know there there's sort of like regardless of what you do, you're fulfilling Eru's will, but that's still like not everybody can conceive of that. And so like the passage that I read about uh, Manway, he's like, well, as I understand Eru. Um, it's, you know, there is an ultimate good that is going out. And Mandos is kind of saying, well, as I understand Eru, it's just bad and it has to be, you know, judged. And so I guess that that's the question is, uh, do they have differing like knowledge of Eru's will or do they have different interpretations? Like, do they already know, like they kind of, they understand, but then their interpretations differ. Go yeah. ahead, Abigail. Yeah, go ahead. I think they have different knowledge i think that and, and first of all i think that can be found in the silmarillion that look at yavanna or or look at yavanna look at varda they have different gifts and different focuses uh, within the works and will of iluvatar i don't think that's because they interpret things differently. I think they were given different gifts and different understandings to complete, to aid in the completion of Eru's will. And I think that can be transferred over to the real world, even if you're not religious. Everyone can agree that people are gifted in different areas and no person is the same or creates the same thing. Like each life brings forth this unique beauty in the time they're on earth. And it contributes to this larger picture of humanity. And the same goes for the bad that can come out of people. It's different for every person. Um, so yeah, I think, I think everyone has a different tiny bit and picture of Eru's will um, to complete in their lifetime, which will ultimately contribute to this larger, more beautiful picture. Larger tree, if you might. If you, if you 
think about what each of them know versus what each of them do, does not know. Just put yourself in one of the Ainur's positions and you think, okay, I know that Eru wants this done. And so being the helpful Ainu that you are, you're going to set out to start making that happen. And then along comes Melkor and screws it up. And to you, he has just ruined what you are trying to do for Eru. But what you don't know is that it is very possible that Eru planned on your starting it this way and Melkor ending it this way. And you've both been his instrument. And is as odd as it looks for the method by which this stuff was created, it actually was necessary for it to be created this way in order for it to work out the way that it needed to be worked out. That's, those are some interesting thoughts, Chad. I, you know, I, again, I, you know, I sit back and I, I think about things where y'all are talking. Um, uh, what about, what about the drowning of Numenor where, uh, the Valar lay down their government of Arda for the for the the drowning of the island. How does that go in line with Shalproof but Mind Instrument? It seems like Eru is much more, he's taking a much more active role there. Does that does that Shalproof but Mind Instrument or is that some sort of outside of the uh, of the of the regular shaping of Iluvatar's will? What do y'all think about that? I think that in the end, uh the sinking of Numenor does prove as his instrument, as in uh, the sinking of Numenor leads to much that is good much later on uh, in the war, the war of the ring and into the fourth age. So it does lead to a lot of good because the Alindali, the, the nine ships that, had the the seven stones and the seven stars on it. The, when they go and they found Gondor and Arnor, they actually do eventually this it does eventually lead to the downfall of Sauron. It's it's kind of a weird path that it takes, but along the route that that happened, who knows if the Sildur and Elendil and Anadion would have even left Numenor. When Numenor sinks, it is a bad thing. It puts the Alindali on Middle-earth and sets in motion this timeline that eventually leads to the downfall of Sauron permanently. I just want to put that out there that I, I, have, no, I have no desire to go to the Caves of the Forgotten. That, that seems terrifying. You know, they really did get to live forever. They were... They were wanting to not die, and so they didn't. They are held in this. They're kind of like the dead men of Dunharrow. They're, they're, they didn't die. They didn't want to die, and they didn't. They're just stuck in the caves of Forgotten until the end of time. So they kind of got their wish. All right, Xander, you ready for your next one? Uh, poetic justice. Uh, yes. Um, all right, so... So I have a question and a read a really short reading. Uh, the question is, what is luck in the legendarium? And uh, uh, the reading is from the Hobbit, uh, page 120 on my 
copy. It is. We're going to be here all night, Xander. <laughs> uh, it is uh, Riddles in the Dark. <clears throat> this thing, all things devours birds, beasts, trees, flowers, gnaws iron, bites steel, grinds hard stone to meal, slays kings, ruins towns, and beats high mountains down. A little bit through. Uh, Bilbo is not able to figure this out, but at the end, he wanted to shout out, give me more time, give me time. But all that came out with a sudden squeal was time, time. Bilbo was saved by pure luck. So what? Yeah, is... right. <laughs> <laughs> the, I guess the, the, the key word there being pure. <laughs> pure luck good uh but i you know something similar to that is uh i i I guess i wanted to build upon that with the um the 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 description i was just trying to look it up but i I, sorry i don't have it on on me immediately but it's the 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 description of the arrow that um by some chance i think is what it was that uh that saves Mary or Pippin, sorry, they're escaping from the from the Urukai, and uh, during the night raid when the Rohirrim come in, and could have ended very badly, but uh, an arrow just happened to to strike the orc so uh, fortuitously that you know they were able to escape. And um, yeah, I can't remember the the exact phrasing, but that that is one of those very much like that where uh, that 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 passes it that that you read Xander because it's you know it seems just like happen chance at the at at that moment but you know that later on you know the 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 ramifications of that you know and since the since the hobbits were able to escape that battle and survive they were then able to link up with uh with treebeard and same you know bilbo like he he it, by pure luck and I guess the purity of it is that, you know, it was some sort of, uh, uh, what is the Harry Potter com- com- comparison there? The Felix, Felix's, uh, anyway, the luck potion. <laughs> you know, it's a uh, Felix Felicius, uh, I think. Felix, yeah. Felix <laughs> right. And so, the, you know, so it's, it's arrow kind of giving a, uh, um, uh, uh, a little, little bit of luck here, but it's, it's really his, his, um, that, that divinity that of like his, his plan that needs to go through. Bilbo needed to find the ring. Marion Pippin needed to escape, and so it was, it was luck, but it was luck that was kind of contrived. Well, you remember at the in the same book, um, in the very end of the Hobbit, all these escapes and narrow misses and stuff that, that. Bilbo finding the ring. We know that it says, you know, later on Gandalf says that Bilbo was meant to find the ring, which means that Frodo was meant to carry it also. And then Gandalf also says, which means I was meant to guide you. And at the very end of The Hobbit, uh, you remember Gandalf asked Bilbo, you don't really suppose, do you, that all your adventures and uh, escapes 
were managed by mere luck just for your sole benefit. And he basically is saying that none of this was luck. Whereas if you look at it from a, not from, from a secular view, if you just look at it from someone who's just there and they just think, wow, I did it again. I'm so good, you know. But really what he's saying, this is, an, this is basically an angel walking the earth telling a mortal, this is not luck. None of it is. This is all preordained. Anytime something worked out for the best, it was intentional. It doesn't matter what it looks like. There we go. Dang it, Chad, you interrupted and stole my line. I was going to go into all of that. So now yeah, he, does, I'm, he does that. Yeah. Now I'm just left with, you know, I got to quote Obi-Wan. In my mind, there's no such thing as luck. And that only reinforces everything Chad just said, which I just wanted to go on record. I was prepared. I was going to say all that. Yeah. Good against remotes is one thing. Good against the living. Huh, that's something else. It's something else. Hey, and I was going to say that too. I, I had found the Hobbit quote and was ready to go. Uh, I think that um, Tolkien is defining luck for us. I think he is taking this concept of the, it seems like luck to the uninformed, but uh, at as you read through the Legendarium and you understand more about Tolkien's worldview, you understand the the phrase that he uses and the wording that he uses for luck. It just like just like everybody has said here, it's not exactly it's 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 actually not luck at all. And I, I think Chad used the word preordained. I mean, I think that that's a pretty fitting word. Uh, not that everything is laid out um, like dominoes, but. I would, I would take us back to the beginning of our discussion with Shall Prove But Mine Instruments. Such an important line in Legendarium. And you you cannot understate how that just is woven through all everything that Tolkien writes. You can kind of see Eru sitting back in the timeless halls, appreciating his own cleverness at how he manipulated all this stuff to work out. And and the people and the the Ainu are like Manway and stuff are like looking at him and going, oh, that was a good one. That was a good one, you know. Yeah, but it's it's but it's there. And the reason that the Legendarium is so relatable to us is that it's not just about predestination. It's not just about Avery's will. It's about free will. It's about that the characters do have that choice that they can make that choice. Um, Tolkien uses the reference of big characters versus small characters, right? Um, Elrond has a line in the Council of Elrond. Uh, exactly. Small hands have to work while the while, while bigger hands are yeah. elsewhere. As such is off the course that move the wheels of the world. That's, that's the one. As small hands do them because they must with the eyes of the greater elsewhere. I think that's... I may be it slightly misquoting it. Yeah. Okay, Xander, what else do you have for us? All right. Uh, I think we only have time for one of one more of my questions. Maybe we'll get to the others. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so, so I have a question and then another reading. So, what happens when someone rejects his will or does not follow his plan? And the reading is going to be out of the Fellowship of the Ring, the Council of Elrond. Uh, Bor Boromir speaking on page 523 of my copy. 
I come to ask for counsel and the unraveling of hard words, for on the eve of the sudden assault, a, a dream came to my brother in a troubled sleep, and afterwards, like a dream, a like dream came off to him again, and once to me. In that dream, I thought the eastern sky grew dark, and there was growing thunder, but in the west, in the west a pale light lingered, and out of it I heard a voice, remote but clear, crying, Seek for the sword that was broken. In, in Imladris it dwells. There shall be counsels taken, stronger than Morgul spells. There shall be shown a token, the doom is near at hand. For Isildur's bane shall awaken, and the halfling forth shall stand. Of these words we could understand little, and we spoke to our father Denethor, lord of Minas Tirith, wise in the lore of Gondor. This only would he say, that Imladris was of old the name among the elves of of a far northern dale <clears throat> where Elrond the half-elven dwelt, greatest of lore masters. Therefore, my brother, seeing how desperate was our need, was eager to heed the dream and seek for Imladris. But since the way was full of doubt and danger, I took the journey upon myself. Now, it seems clear to me that Faramir was the one who was called, but Boromir took the quest. So what happens when someone rejects his will or does not follow his plan? Abigail? They still prove, but his instrument. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. I sound like a broken record, but it's true. That's too simple, Abigail. Make it longer. <laughs> so Boromir although he met his death uh, along the quest, uh, and although he succumbed to the temptation of the ring, in the end, he, first of all, rescued Marion Pippin, which, which had a huge effect on the rest of the tale. And second of all, in the end, in his death, he found freedom from the temptations of the ring. And so his pride was redeemed into something beautiful that probably would not have otherwise happened. So to answer your question again, it all proves but his instrument. Everything can be redeemed and bring forth this great beauty that would not otherwise exist, even in acts of rebellion. I, I like the way, you know, whenever he did that and Boromir dies, they say, few have gained such a victory because he escaped. By Boromir dying, he was no longer put in the position to be tempted by the ring again. He, was, he shouldn't have been there. Faramir should have been there. When Boromir was there, we're, we are put in, we have been put into a position where it's possible where the whole plan can unravel by having a powerful person who is prideful and the ring is going to try and go for that person. And it almost got him. He came back to, and then he's put in a position to sacrifice his life, saving people. And by dying, he escaped the ring and Sauron, and they say, few have gained such a victory. And he's dead. 
few have gained such a victory. And the dude's dead. That the victory is the victory over evil, even though he has died. I love that. That's great. Steve? Yeah, so, so I agree uh, that they will prove but the instrument, but I, I think you can downplay the consequences of evil actions. The, you know, the wrong actions kill people. They, they hurt the environment. They, um, they alienate people from one another. And, and even though Iluvatar can bring a greater good, and he, ultimately there's a greater good out of it all, there, there, is, there are bad things along the way. That they really are bad things. Um, I just I think we have to be careful not to oversimplify in in favor of the good. Yeah, I've, I'm I'm racking my brain trying to think of an example of like uh, of of rejecting rejecting the will. And all I can like you know if one one thing that that comes to mind is is um, where as just like you when you mentioned the uh, earlier the uh, men of Dunharo was like, oh yeah, of course, you know, they, I always forget about those guys because it, it is like they, they, everything about them is, is just, you know, that they, they betrayed their, their, their oath. Um, and by lingering on uh, in middle earth, this kind of like uh, a previous discussion about like uh, about the fates of uh, men and elves and they're going against their natural fate to uh for you know what what the fate of men is to die we're not really sure what happens to their souls afterwards but uh that they like but because they get to to remain they do have that redemption much like Gollum, uh, as you mentioned earlier and they they get to help aragorn and like they are redeemed and like even though like despite their transgressions in the past they 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 get to help out and you know it was kind of like you know as to to reiterate that point of like the instrument of Eru's will like they get to fulfill uh, the like, i guess their their purpose was not to not to perform when they were asked to but to to do their their duty by aragorn and not his ancestor yeah and the only thing to briefly follow up on and reemphasize steve brought up an excellent point that there are unnecessary evils with free will and those even though there is an opportunity for redemption those evils cannot be dismissed as oh well it was worth it it was still those evils were still terrible and we should mourn them and we should work to repair them we should not dismiss them, uh, sweep it under the rug of like, oh, well, everything turned out fine. Like that is another very important aspect to acknowledge and discuss in this topic of Eru's will and redemption of the rebellion of free will. It's very complicated, but Steve brought up an excellent, excellent point. And I'm going to, I'm going to bring us back to one of the major themes that I see developing within these four episodes uh, uh, is one of these universal truths that Abigail just touched on that Tolkien is so, so good at writing about. Xander, you want to close us out? Uh, 
Yeah, thank you. That was a great discussion. I really love the subject and I really appreciate you all talking with me about it. All right, if uh, there's nothing else, anybody else has anybody anything to add or anything like that? Otherwise, we're going to go ahead and close out this episode. And we thank the four of you for being here, Xander, Sam, Abigail, and Steve. And Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah nothing else you. to add. It was great. Great conversation, guys. Tons of fun. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast. Our goal is to create a podcast where the voices of Tolkien fans worldwide can be heard, and that means we want to hear from you, and so do all of our listeners. If you want to get on the podcast, you can go to our website at texastolkien.com. Click on the link that says Getting on the Podcast and fill out the simple form with your name, contact info, and topic that you would like to discuss. And I promise we'll make room for you. You can also interact with us on our Facebook page at Texas Tolkien Talk Podcast where you can see the latest announcements and happenings. If you want to get in touch, you can drop us a line at texastolkientalk at gmail.com. All your thoughts and questions are welcome. Until next time, folks. Namadier.